come, and he's got one more announcement to make for us. Come on, can you give Steve a warm City Life welcome? Thanks, thanks. If you watch a lot of TV or you listen to radio, you've undoubtedly heard about Peyton Manning, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, signing with the Denver Broncos, right? Now, Manning's decision to go to Denver was a surprise. What they paid him wasn't. They're paying Manning $95 million for five years. That works out with bonuses and everything for about $20 million a year. Do you know that the two hours that we're in here tonight, $22 million will be spent on pornography in America? $22 million in two years. Last year and the year before that, the porn industry has grossed a revenue that exceeds that of the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. 20 years ago, the church was kind of silent about it, you know? 10 years ago, they spoke up and said, stop. Today, we have to do something different. We have to offer ourselves as an extension of hope and compassion. Mark 2.17, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come for the righteous, but the sinner. My friends, sexual struggles are not limited to pornography alone. There's a myriad of relational issues that we, as a body, want to offer, not just to those in the church, but those outside the church. We're, we're offering a 12-week course called The Rescue. In this course, we're going we're gonna to address many different things. We're gonna, we hope to help the addicted, the broken, the confused, the discouraged, through fellowship, accountability, and a mutual submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. Can I have these guys come on up? Look, folks, if we, as the body of Christ, do not reach out and let folks know that, you know what, there's hope. We believe that city life will be a city light to hope throughout the community. So if, you're, if you just want information, if, if maybe you want to know to increase your awareness of the battle that's before us, maybe you or someone you know has in, been in a vicious cycle of repeated failure in this area, or maybe you want to work through some issues yourself that just says, you know what, there's some false intimacy issues and some subsequent shame, come on out. Grab one of these cards on the table about the rescue. Talk to myself. Talk to Chad Morgan, Tyler Ashworth, or Nick for further information. Before I sit down, I want to say thank you to Pastor Fred for your leadership and your heart to want to see men set free. And to everybody at City Life, thank you for your prayers and your support so we can reach out to men so they can experience heaven now, heaven forever. That's good. That's good. Come on. Come on, let's pray into that before we move forward. Father, we just lift up that time of men gathering together for the rescue, and we just declare by faith that it's going to be exactly that, that people are going to get rescued, God, out of a life of mediocrity, of settling for less in the area of their sexuality. Father, we pray that clarity is going to come where there's sexual confusion. We pray that power is going to come and break addictions that have gripped people's lives. For, for men that have, maybe they've come to the resolution, I've tried so so many times before, come on, that courage is going to well up in their heart. They're going to try one more time, that they are not going to give up. They're not going to settle for less. In Jesus' name, and we pray that same prayer for every church in this region. In Jesus' name. Come on, everybody said together. Amen. Come on, it's good. That's going to be a great group. It's going to be a great time together. Do not let shame keep you hidden because that's exactly what the devil wants to do. He wants to keep you hidden, and if he keeps you hidden, he keeps you stuck. And we want you to get unstuck from that stuff in your, in your life. So, hey, I'm just throwing it out there, too, like this, the hockey thing that's coming out. That's just not just to go see a hockey game. You with me, guys? That's for guys to begin to build relationships with each other. It's one of the reasons why guys, guys struggle so much in secret areas of their life. We're going to be talking about it a little bit tonight, is we do not have relationships that are deep enough where there are people that love us enough or we trust them enough to ask us the hard questions. So if you call this your home church, I need to see your name on that sign-up sheet out there. Are you with me? We should be calling the, 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 uh, the, the hockey arena and saying, hey, we need more seats, not less seats. That is men, we need to invest in relationships with one another. And if you're here saying, I'm not sure what I'm going to get out of it, you're asking the wrong question. You're coming to give something to it so you can be a friend to someone else who's there who needs it. Come on, we want to see your sign up on there. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. All right, come on, we got, hey, let's give an update for Christy. 
She's doing great. You know, Christy had, Rogers had major surgery this week with some fusing of some, some discs in her, in her back. And so we were there on Friday uh, late afternoon to visit with her. And uh, we didn't get to talk to her at all because she was asleep, right? I think it might have something to do with the fact that the morphine clicker, I think Tim might have had that looking for the basketball game, trying to, you know, why isn't the channel changing? But Christy had this really big smile on her face, so... She's feeling good. She's, she is at home, and she is in recovery. And, uh, and so if, if you have a card that you want to send, we're asking that people not show up there unannounced because she has strict limitations uh, because of the surgery that she had. So send a card. You can shoot an email. Um, if you have a message, that you know, just do it that way, Facebook. Uh, so we want to give them some privacy if we can. And then they're going to let us know when they're ready to really interact with people. So we're going to ask that we kind of uh, respect that a little bit. So, But we are excited uh, for Christy. And uh, she has just she is an amazing person, the pain that she's been in for these last couple of years. But, yeah, the character of Christ that she has demonstrated. Uh, so, yeah, just amazing, amazing. All right, a couple of giveaways, and then we're going to launch into the message tonight, right? Living in the Gap. How convenient that there is a clothing store called The Gap just for us just for us. So we've got four t-shirts. Um, I'm going to put them up here and they can get them. But the, if you've been tracking with us for any amount of time, you've known that the seating has been limited on the size because there have been projectors, right? Portable projectors. And so there were four guys that, that spent an inhuman amount of hours last weekend getting those projectors mounted up for us. So Greg Reed, who oversees our tech team, Cord Walls, uh, Chandler Agate, and also Ryan back there uh, in the sound booth tonight. Uh, so can you give them a, a rousing round of applause? So there's a, a t-shirt for each of them because they're living in the gap, serving this church so lovingly. And so if you see them, you can give them a big thank you. So, all right, let's get rolling tonight. I'm, ex I'm excited about this series that we're in and kind of the, the series within the series. You know, we've been talking about disobedience. We launched into that last uh, week and we're going to keep dialing in that this weekend and possibly next week and, and maybe a little bit beyond. We'll, we'll see how it, how it flows with, with time tonight. But I want to open the night with telling you one of my all-time favorite stories. I haven't told this story yet. When we came in, in, uh, in, in uh, 2007, 2007, so I've been, I've been holding out and saving this one. You with me? So Vanessa grew up in northern New York. It's not about Vanessa, though. She's like, great, yeah? Great, great. Sleeping on the couch tonight. So up there, they measure snow in feet. Like, you know, when their family first moved here, and right, they, they would give it snow three inches. She's like, that's not snow, you know, until it crosses the foot marker. It's not real snow. So obviously snow skiing was, was huge up there. Uh, where, where they were from in, in northern New York. And so she lives so far up. They were right on the Canadian border. Where she grew up in northern New York, she was further away from New York City than we are as distance-wise to New York City here in Virginia. You know, New York just creeps and climbs way, way, way on up there. And so they uh, had some friends that, that went snow skiing, and uh, they get up to the top on the lift, right? How many of you know you go to the bathroom before you get on the ski lift? Anybody ever snow skied before? right? There are no porta-potties on the top of the mountain, right? They're, they're not up there. They're not up there. So this, this young couple, they, they get up to, I'm, I'm going to leave their name out, right? Or because I might get a call from an attorney on, on Monday. So, so they get up to the top of the mountain and, and the wife says, right? I got to go pee, right? I mean, I really have to go. And they're like, well, wh what are you going to do? And so they, they got off the ski lift, and, it, you know, they, they went off the side of the trail, just kind of around the corner. There was a kind of a wooded patch. And so she gets up, right? She's up there. And so you got lots of layers on, right? If you've ever been skiing before, you got your bibs and sweaters and layers. So she's getting all of that, you know, undone. And so she's, she's right there at the edge of the trail, and the husband's kind of looking out for her. And she gets all of that stuff around her knees, and she kind of, you know, gets in the position that she needs to do what she needs to do and she's standing there long enough what's happening to the snow beneath her skis yeah it's melting yeah yeah and melted snow turns to what yes and skis are made to do what on slick surfaces move and if you've skied before you know that they do not have brakes right you got to 
turn, you got to do this, you got to do all these types of moves. That's exactly what it looks like, just like I did, in case you didn't know. So all of a sudden, she's moving. But yeah. So she goes to stand up to be able to shift the skis to stop, and her all of the clothes, and are, she's stuck in a squatted position, and she's on the trail careening down the mountain. I kid you not, this is a true story. It was daytime, but the moon was out. <laughs> Children are flying. Teenage boys are staring. People are screaming. She ends up, I kid you not, at the bottom of the mountain. She is not in good shape. She crashes. The ski patrol has to come out. You know what they're thinking? I don't think I've seen this before. Other people are injured along the way, right? Because she can't move, right? She's stuck in the squatted position. Her rear end's hanging out. She's traveling now. She can't guide. She's just taking them out one as she comes along. So the husband follows the ambulance to the emergency room. And he's sitting in the, in the ER, and there's a gentleman sitting next to him who's clearly angry and just looks like he needs to get off of his chest, you know, whatever's bothering him. So being a kind, caring Christian, you know, this man says, are you all right? And he just erupted with this story of this pantless lady who has just ruined their vacation, careening down a mountain. His wife is in the ER. She is hurt. So they don't even know whether or not they're going to be able to finish their vacation. And he tells this, this, this incredible tale, right? No pun intended. And, 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 so, and so he looks at him and says, why are you here? He said, oh, my wife, she just slipped on the sidewalk at the house. So, See, it is never right to lie, but sometimes it is prudent. It is prudent. It is prudent to not tell the truth. I'm telling you that story. I'm telling you that story tonight. Come on, we've been saving it. We're telling you that story tonight because there are times in our lives where there's nothing that you can do differently. You just end up in situations that are just horrific and horrendous, hopefully that you can laugh at later in life. And hopefully it's a, you know, it happens to your spouse, so you tell the story about them and not about you. Right? All of us have things in our lives when we look back, we've, and we've played it over a thousand times, and we come to the same conclusion, there's nothing that I could have done differently. A thousand times, I'm going to do it the same way each time. That there's, there's just things that happen in this life that are unavoidable. But there are other times, as we look into our past, circumstances that we face, situations that we end up in, consequences that we are walking out and it is a direct correlation to a choice that we've made that we should have done something different some things in the story of our lives some things in the story of our past they are there because of what we did and what we did not do and if we had a chance to do it over, we would do it over because we know that there was a different outcome that was possible if we had made a better decision. This theme that we launched in the uh, anniversary service at the end of January about being a church that's going to dream a God-sized dream, a Psalm 124 existence. That's the verse that this, this idea is born out of, where the Israelites said if the Lord had not been on our side, that there was a, a life that they lived where they got a divine outcome that transcended the limitations of their humanity. What we're calling out on the wire. You can listen to the podcast to learn more about that imagery. Living in the gap. We want to be a church that lives somewhere in between what I can and who he is. We want a divine outcome from our lives. And as we look into the story of our past in times where we did not get a divine outcome, many of those moments, it's because we made a bad decision. And we want to be a church that, one, helps you get free from the shame of the bad decisions from your past. Yes, absolutely, but like this idea with the rescue, we also want to be a church that helps you learn how to make better decisions in your tomorrows. So if there is heartache that's waiting for you, then it's, it's the kind of stuff that's perchance. It's the kind of stuff that's by divine providence. We, in Preserver's Prayer, we talked about if we're going to suffer in this life, let it be we suffer in the hands of a sovereign God, not out of the foolishness of our own mistakes. 
not out of the foolishness of our own mistakes. And so uh, the Abners, when they preached in February, talked about being a, a part of missionary families growing up in Papua New Guinea, introduced that verse Daniel 11.32. And then last week we introduced Habakkuk 3.2 that says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. We want to be a people that dream a God-sized dream, that God has great things that he wants to do through your life in your lifetime in your generation. And if there is any one thing that the devil is trying to always do, it's he's trying to diminish our destinies by making us willfully disobedient. We opened up, as we're going to see from the text that we return to in John 21, we spent a couple of weeks talking about how he wants us to be emotionally damaged, so we'll be functionally disabled. And then last week we introduced a new idea, this idea that he seeks to diminish our destinies by making us willfully disobedient. The Apostle Paul understood this principle. So in Ephesians 4, 27, he says, which is our life verse, do not give the devil a foothold. It's the Greek, it's the word topos, which gives us the word topography. In your Bible, it might say, don't give the devil a place. We have to wake up every day of our lives and make a conscious decision that I am going to choose to obey the commands of Christ in my life. If there's going to be something that is of less than a divine outcome that happens, it's going to be by, not by my own doing, not by my own choosing, not by my own fault. We want to be a people, come on, that has a heart that says to Jesus, be it unto me as you desire every moment of every day, all the days of our lives. So this is the part of the text in John 21. Many of you are familiar with this story, the, the latter part where Jesus restores Peter to being one of the apostles because he's betrayed Christ three times. So he asks him the three, do you love me questions? But last week we started digging around in the first part of that story and we, we find a powerful principle here. Let me read it. It says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So early in the morning, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. It was full, come on, it was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. All of us have throw your net moments in our lives. Moments where Jesus tells us to do something and we have a decision that we have to make in that moment. It's a throw your net moment. Are you gonna do what he says or not? And the difference between a life that lives with empty nets, come on, with a human effort that gets a human result that's just frustrating over and over and over again is a life that lives a life of disobedience. It's the person that says to Jesus, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. There has to be something in our heart that says, Jesus, come on, even though I don't understand, even though I might not want to, even though I not, might not be excited about it, you are the sovereign creator of the universe. Who am I to say no to you? And if we can get to a place where we begin to submit to him, where we yield our heart to him, when he tells us to throw our knot, which is sometimes not doing things that we shouldn't be doing, or it could be doing things that we need to start doing right. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. There's bad things we need to stop, and there's good things that we need to start doing. When he says, throw your net, there has got to be something in our heart that says, Jesus, I will do what you say. A human effort in response to a sovereign command always gets a divine outcome. A human effort in response to a sovereign command always gets a divine outcome. That's the principle that's laid out for us here in John 21. This idea of the nets being so full but not torn is a powerful metaphor for our humanity. God wants us to accomplish far beyond, far beyond what's reasonable given our human limitation. The limitations of our giftings, the limitation of our personality, the limitation of our education and our upbringing, all of us have limits. And God says, come on, the divine outcome that I want to see come out of your life is not based on what you can and can't do. It's based on who I am. 
That's what living in the gap is. In between what I can and who he is, and obedience determines the outcome of your day. And we want to be a church, come on, that chooses to say yes to Christ. Matthew 4, 18 through 21. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and Andrew, that was his brother, throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. So we've moved way back in time. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets and at once, come on, they followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in the boat with their father Zebedee. And we know the story, and it just keeps going on and on. Jesus keeps having these encounters with people, and he says, follow me. And they, they choose to leave one way of life for the life that he's called them to begin to live. And what's, what's fascinating to me about this story is that sometimes the throw-your-net moments have nothing to do with matters of morality. Sometimes the throw-your-net moments isn't a choice between doing something despicable and, and doing something that, that, that is honorable. Now, our lives are filled with moments like that, too. Come on, we know that to be true. But many of the throw-your-net moments in our lives, it's a choice between two things that, on the surface, they're both good. I mean, what are they doing? They are doing an honorable thing. They are working hard in their family business, trying to provide for their family. There is a work ethics that's being demonstrated here. There's a loyalty to family that's being demonstrated here. Are you tracking? That, that sometimes the throw your net moments, the thing that Jesus is asking us to lay down is a good thing. Sometimes it's a relationship that we might be in. Sometimes it's a career that we're pursuing. Sometimes it's an educational track. This idea of throw your nets, we need to be prepared for Jesus to tell us to cast our net in all different areas of our life. And oftentimes it's some of the good things that we have assumed are good. But Jesus says, if you stay there, come on, you will be settling for mediocrity. I have something different for you. So it was in the spring of 1999, Vanessa, had been, we had been married for two years. My boss calls me in to her office, and, and uh, you never know when you're getting called into the boss's office, right? Is there going to be a cardboard box on the desk, right? So, so it's good news. She says, hey, we're creating a new division in the company, and we want you to oversee it. Huge promotion for me. Huge, huge career thing for me. Vanessa and I, we'd been married for two years, so I'm 32. We started talking about having a family and being able to start having children. And, and it's not necessarily everybody's plan, but our plan was for her to be able to stay at home. And one of the reasons why we need to wait for that is that she worked full-time and I worked full-time. And, 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 and there had to be some, some, some something was going to happen, need to happen in my job in order for us to be able to dial her job back to start having a family, right? So we were praying for that, right? Working hard at our jobs, hoping for an opportunity, and here it is. So we're excited. Vanessa's going to be able to start dialing back her job. We're going to be able to start planning for kids. And a couple of weeks later, we're in church. Those darn church services, right? Pastor Carter gets up and makes an announcement. See? Things can happen in announcements. Yeah, come on. See? See? They said, we are going to hire a business administrator for our church. The church had grown from about 500 to about 1,500 people in just a few years. So their infrastructure was still that for a very small church. They said, we're going to hire a, a business administrator that's going to be a part of our pastoral team. They're going to be on the pastoral staff, but their ministry is going to be the business of the church. I was like this. Did he say, what's he saying, Vanessa? Because we looked at each other and we said, right? I'm supposed to do that, right? Less money, less benefits. All the plans that we have, all the things that we wanted to do. But when Jesus says, throw your net, there should be something inside of us that says, I can't wait to get it out of my hands into the direction that he has for me. Even if it looks like he's asking us to choose less, even if he's asking us to lay down something that we're convinced that he gave to us. And you better believe sometimes the things that he asks you to lay down are the things that he put into your hands because he wants you to, to know, are you going to worship the thing he puts in your hands or are you going to worship the one who put it there? 
So I don't have any question that he put me in this predicament on purpose because he's trying to teach me something. Do you want a human result or do you want a divine outcome? Because if you want a divine outcome, when the sovereign command comes, that's what the human effort needs to follow. So we had to rework our plans, re rework our lives, and, and come on, guess what? It works itself out. If he asks us to throw our net, there is something that we're going to catch on the other side. I'm telling you that you do not want to live without, and that launched us. So I had accepted that promotion already. I had met with my boss. She had met with the president of the company, all the things, and I had to walk back into her office and say, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. They were so incredibly gracious. Come on, it was a great organization. They had lots of questions. Of course, they thought I was making a foolish decision, but they knew a little bit about our story. We lived in the inner city. We had a homeless ministry that we operated. We did the Sunday morning feeding program and public church service for the homeless back then. And so they knew that was a big part of our lives. And so they knew, they knew that it was, that we were really chasing after what God was asking of us. Throw your net. When the word comes, what are you going to do? Because I'm telling you what God is trying to give to you, even though it might seem less in the moment, it's so much greater in the end. All right, so we're going to talk about three kinds of disobediences if we have time tonight. The first one is this. We want to talk about blame disobedience, right? We talked about habitual disobedience last week. You can get that on the podcast. The notes are going to be up online. Then the notes for tonight will be on, online as well. We're going to talk about blame disobedience. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about impatience, disobedience, and we're going to talk about if we have time, we're going to get to unworthiness, disobedience. Okay, you ready? Blame disobedience. So when the Lord was also angry with me because of you, this is Moses being a great leader, berating the people, right? He said to me, Moses, not even you will enter the promised land. You might be familiar with the story, Moses, he's been leading the Israelites in the desert, and they were kind of a rebellious lot, and so because of some mistakes that Moses made, God says to him, you're not going to enter the promised land. And so here's Moses giving the reason why he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. What's he say? As a, every great leader, it's your fault. If you hadn't been so cantankerous, if you'd have been a little bit easier to lead, I'd be going to the promised land with you. And just in case you think he's having a bad day, he repeats the accusation in 336. He repeats it again in 421. And then, we, then we read God's side of the story. Come on, if you work with people, there are always two sides to every story. No matter how convincing they might be, talk to the wife. Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 52. That same day, the Lord said to Moses, go to Moab, to the mountains east of the river and climb Mount Nebo and look out across the land of Canaan to the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel as their own special possession, then you will die on the mountain. Not a great thing to tell people if you're trying to get them to do something, right? You go into the mountain up, and I don't think I'm quite ready to go yet. He knows once he goes there, he's dying. You will join your ancestors. Listen to what God says. This is God's side of the story. Because you betrayed me with the Israelites at the waters of Meribah. It's interesting, God does not say God does not say because of the rebelliousness of the people. He doesn't say because of these people that you're leading, because I know I put on you more than, right, it's their fault. No, no, no. He says, because you betrayed me at the waters of Meribah. Now, what happened at the waters of Meribah? God said to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and water is going to come out of it. And he didn't speak to the rock. He struck it with his staff, which is the same way, thing that he had done 40 years before when they first came out of the Exodus. And that, and that might seem like, That's kind of, that's hard, right? I mean, right? I mean, if God said, speak to the rock, and he touches it with his stick, you would think that the grace of God would be big enough to say, that's okay. But Moses, he lived by a different standard. The Bible tells us that he was, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. The Bible tells us that Moses was the greatest prophetic leader to ever walk on the face of this earth. To whom much is given, much is required. He lived at a different standard. He had a different level of responsibility in his area of obedience of his life. So God says, right, because the sin he committed was to really say to God, no, no, I got this. I can do this one myself. That was the sin of Samson, right? Delilah didn't dupe him into anything. He just got to a place in his heart where he said, I don't really need this hair. My strength belongs to me. Moses, from the verses that we just read, 
He's using the sin of the people as justification for his own wrongdoing. He's suffering from blame disobedience. He's, he's stepped into a place in his life where he's so irritated and so frustrated and so disappointed in other people that now he, at the waters of Meribah, says, you know what? Because they do it wrong, I'm just going to do it my way too. And we see this pattern playing out in people's lives throughout history over and over and over and over again. Think about yourself, your, your own life. What about you? If we were to ask you, we're not going to do that. We like participation, but we don't want you to make yourself overly vulnerable in a room this large. And so think about your own life. Times in your life where you did something that was wrong and you knew it was wrong, but you said, you know, I'm justified because, and fill in the blank. Maybe some of these are yours that you would fill in the blank. If they had not been so hard to lead, if my spouse had just loved me more, if my boss had worked harder, if my church had valued this ministry of mine, if my government had accomplished more, if my neighbor was more friendly, if my children were more obedient, if my parents didn't expect so much of me, come on, and that list just goes on and on and on and on. We feel justified in our own wrongdoing. We feel justified in our own disobedience because of the sin and the bad choices and the disobedience of others around us. It's one of the great traps that the devil lays out for us. It's one of the ways he gets a foothold in your life. He says, hey, especially in, especially in marriages, why should you be faithful if they weren't? Come on, you know how it tracks. Why should you show respect to your boss when they don't respect you? The devil whispering in your ear to bring you to a place of justification for your own moments of disobedience because of the things that others around you do and do not do. Luke 6, 37, it's a powerful verse. Jesus says, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, there's no question that Jesus is teaching a little bit about reciprocity here, that you reap what you sow, and if you want to be forgiven, then you've got to give forgiveness. But I also believe that Jesus is teaching this very important principle that we're saying right now, this area of blame disobedience. He's saying, if you do not forgive other people of their wrongdoing, and you harbor offense, and you, you hold this thing in your heart, this, this feeling of being frustrated against other people for their mistakes, you create an area of vulnerability in your life. You become vulnerable to the temptation of the enemy that you are going to step into a place of doing things that you know you shouldn't do, and you're going to use their sin because you're so irritated by them as justification. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you don't want to be judged in that way, then give grace to other people. Paul picks up on it in Galatians 6 where he talks about if someone's caught in a sin that people who are spiritually mature with gentleness should go and restore that person. But he gives a warning. He said, be careful that you don't, as you go, find yourself in sin. What's he talking about? He's talking about blame disobedience. Be careful when you're dealing with the mistakes of other people because if you're, if you're not careful, if you're not cautious, if you're not discerning, their sin becomes justification to you. Come on, we're going to be a forgiveness-seeking church where reconciliation breaks the pattern of blame disobedience in our lives. We're going to be a forgiveness-seeking church where reconciliation breaks the pattern of blame disobedience in our lives. When moments where we find that people are at odds with each other, whether it be in marriages, whether it be with their children, whether it be on ministry teams, come on. We're not a perfect place because none of us are perfect people. There's times where we irritate one another. As a church, we have a culture where we work that stuff out. We sit down at a table. Of all the reasons, there has to be an exchange of forgiveness so there could be a moment of reconciliation, one of the greatest motivations in your heart that you've got to be willing to participate in those moments, to have those tough conversations, is that you are going to remove an area of vulnerability in your life that God wants you to be free from. All right, come on, number two, impatience, disobedience. Impatience, disobedience is the next one here. 1 Samuel 16 through 14, 6 through 14, it says, The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation, and they hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns, which are wells. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And if you keep reading this story, what you find is that Samuel had told Saul, On this day, a certain day, I will come. We will make a sacrifice to the Lord, and he will give us the instruction that we need to go out, come on, and get a divine outcome on our battle. Human result in response to a sovereign command brings a divine outcome. So Saul, he waits, and he waits. Days and days go by. Samuel doesn't show up. 
As you read in the story, Saul says, I will do it myself, right? He's stinking tired of waiting. As soon as he offers the sacrifice, which he is not allowed to do as the king, that's only the role for the priest and the prophet, Samuel comes onto the scene and says, Saul, oh my goodness, what have you done? You should read the story. And Saul says, I didn't want to do it. I had to force myself to do it, right? But you didn't come when you said that you would. And Samuel says to Saul, not being willing to wait is never an excuse to do what you know in your heart to be wrong. It's impatience, disobedience. And and Samuel says to Saul, on this day, God was going to establish your reign as king for your lineage through your sons without end. Your family was going to be a, a, a family of kings through generations to come. But because you chose to disobey on this day, God has taken this kingdom from you and given it to someone else who we know becomes David. It's serious business. The devil wants to diminish our destinies by making us willfully disobedient. So I was talking to Pastor Steve Nichols, who's the pastor of Rivers Cross, the Anglican church that meets here on Sunday mornings. And I was here uh, early one day this week, and I was in the prayer chapel, and as I was leaving to go to the office, I ran into him there. He was standing at the door, and we ended up talking for a little while. And so he was telling me the story of how he came here. He's from New Zealand. He's just this, the neatest man. And we were talking, and, and it was, it, I think it was like 20-some years ago. He immigrated here from New Zealand with his family. His children were young, and he felt like God was asking him to go to a seminary in California. And so he, and, and then they were supposed to give their lives to ministry here in the, in the States. And so they came, he had acceptance letters, right? He, he had corresponded, he had an acceptance letter from the university to come. He had been accepted into the Master of Divinity program. And when we got here, there had been a huge shakeup in the administration at the seminary, and they would not recognize his acceptance letter. They, they literally had the gall to say, this man who had immigrated here, left his country to come here, they said, that was given to you by the former administration, but we're not going to recognize it. Well, he, he was not a happy man, right? So he went, found a place where he could be alone and said, God, we're going to fight this thing together. And God says, no, we're not. I didn't want you to go to that seminary anyways. I just knew that was what was going to get you here. Right? We can't manipulate people that way, but when you're in the sovereign creator of the universe, you get to do what you want. Because he always has our best interests at heart. He leads us around by our desires all the time. So he had to go on this journey. Why am I here? He ended up pastoring a a, a small church there in California year after year after year after year. So many times he said, I just felt like giving up. Stepping into a moment of disobedience. It's not a a matter of morality, but picking up his family, going back home, going to some other school, going his own way. But he held strong. So one day he has this vision He's standing at this wall that goes up into the sky, and there's a small door, and Jesus is on the other side of the door, and Jesus opens it, and he's peering through over Jesus' shoulder because he's terribly curious in this vision to see what's on the other side, and he sees a forest that's sloping down towards a river, and there on the river there were three ships with three tall masts. That's all that he saw, then the vision ended. That's all, that's all he had. That's all he had. So he met with his bishop. He said, I feel like God's speaking to me. I'm not making some type of change. I don't want to submit it to you. Come on. That's an honorable man. The bishop prayed and said, I, I think that, I think you're hearing from the Lord here. I don't know what that vision means, but I, I think a change is on the horizon too. Gave him a list of Anglican churches that had openings everywhere in the United States. Now, somebody had given a prophetic word over his life earlier in his life that he was going to minister in a place where immigrants came to this country. So he always thought he was going to end up in New York City because of Ellis Island. So he sees there's an opening here in Newport News, Virginia, Rivers Cross, 25 people on a multi-church campus. He's like, okay, what's next, right? But he just couldn't get that opening out of his heart. So he pulls up Google, right, maps, and he does the satellite map, and as he's zooming in, Jamestown is the very first city that pops up into the screen. And all of a sudden he realized, wow, I guess a few immigrants came into the country through that city. He didn't know a lot about the histories from New Zealand, remember? He doesn't know about the ships. He doesn't know about Jamestown, replicas, although he doesn't know anything about that. So he's sharing it with a friend. He comes to visit. He's telling the story, and his friend says, hey, we need to go see something. He takes him to Jamestown, 
They walk out. You ever been there? It's beautiful. They walk out, and his friend says, hey, what do you think about those over there? Three ships, three masts, and he said he almost fainted because it was the very three ships from the vision that he had. Come on, if we are willing to wait, if we're willing to wait because we know God is saying, this is what I have for you, Yes, sometimes it feels unfair, but he's not in it for your comfort. He's in it for your destiny. And if we're not careful, we will choose like Saul did to be disobedient in a moment because we're just tired of waiting on God. Psalm 27, 14 talks about that. This, if, you're lo- if you're in the place like that, you need to get a hold of that verse. It talks about waiting on the Lord, being of good courage. Be patient for the destiny that God has for you. A human effort in response to a sovereign command, that's the only way that you're going to get a divine outcome in your life. Luke 7, 1 through 10, it says, when he had concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion slave who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And as you continue reading in the story, Jesus says that he has not found so great a faith in all of Israel. This man says, I'm a man that understands authority. I understand how authority works. He's a, it's called a centurion, which means that he has 100 Roman soldiers that are under him. He says, I understand. I say to this one, go, and they go. And my, right, my commander says to me, do this, and I do. And he's saying to Jesus, hey, you just give the word. I'm waiting on you because I know that you're the man. We're going to be a submission-seeking church where accountability breaks the pattern of impatience, disobedience in our Lives. Now, maybe this took a turn that you weren't expecting, but this is one of the greatest, greatest antidotes to impatience, disobedience, is accountability relationships. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not saying I'm supposed to be that in your life. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know we don't preach that here. What I am saying is you better have somebody in your life who knows you well enough to know what kind of questions you need to be asked in moments when you're impatient. You better have somebody in your life who you trust enough who when they say no to you, that it carries weight. I'm not saying it has to be me. I'm not saying it has to be a leader in this church. But what I am saying, if you're living your life, and right now you cannot think of one person that if they said no to you, that you wouldn't do it in a moment where you were impatient out of respect of the wisdom that you've seen demonstrated in their life, I am telling you that you are a vulnerable person. Every single one of us, no matter who we are, No matter what our title is, no matter what our vocation is, we should have a small group of people around us that when we feel like that God is asking us to wait longer than we should, that we can go to them and share it with them and and let them speak into our lives and let them say to us, hey, don't do that. You wait. And that there's something inside of us that says, even though I don't want to because I trust you, because I know you, because I love you, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. We want to be a church that helps you find those kinds of relationships. It's one of the reasons why we do life groups. It's one of the reasons why we go to hockey games together. It's one of the reasons why women go paint pottery together. Are you with me? You've got to put yourself in environments where those relationships can begin to form in your life so that at the point where you need it the most, that there are people who love you enough to step up in your grill and say, hey, don't do that. It's how our governance team operates, right? The Kearneys and the, and the Nawadnes and the Rogers, Vanessa and I, have said to them on many occasions, you all need to be the people that say no to us. It does not matter who you are. There have to be people in your life that you submit your heart to. And if you're not, you are vulnerable. The devil has a foothold in your life. And when you're impatient, you're going to end up doing what you want, and he's going to diminish your destiny. All right, come on. Let's do one more. Unworthiness, disobedience unworthiness, disobedience. Then we're going to do three more next week. Luke 5, 1 through 7. Let's read this one. Luke 5, 1 through 7. Okay, here we go. Luke 5, 1 through 7. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, come on, we read this last week at the end of the service. He was standing by Lake Genesaret, and he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. This is the same as as the Sea of Galilee. And the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats which belonged to Simon, 
and asked him, this is Peter, to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But this is earlier in time. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing but at your word. Come on, I will let down the nets. Early on, he's already realized, come on, I want to be a throw your net kind of person. Where he says to do it, I'm going to obey. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And he uses the word there in the Greek, hamartolos, which is an archery term. means I've missed the mark. I've missed the mark. So here he is. He understands that Jesus is asking something of him in his life. He's asking him to be. This isn't the first encounter. It's often confused, this text. This happened probably about a year after his first encounter, which we read earlier, where he said, come and follow me. This is about a year to a year and a half. He had gone back to fishing. Jesus comes back to him and is calling them back to be a disciple, to leave everything that he had and follow him. And Peter says, I can't do it because I'm a sinful man. Some of the moments of disobedience in our lives, it's not because we can't stop looking at what other people have done. It's because we can't stop looking at what we've done ourselves. It's a little bit different from blame disobedience. You're with me? Blame disobedience is when we use the mistakes of others to justify our own mistakes. Unworthiness disobedience is where we say, I've lived such a rotten life so far, I might as well just keep doing the same old thing. It's a different kind of whisper the devil has in your ear. Well, you've been doing it for this long. Why stop? You're never going to change. Some of you have heard it over and over, and you just can't look away. So I'm at the gym this week, right? Telling a gym story every week because we're building up pretty soon to talking about the stewardship of our physical body. So I'm trying to encourage you. So I'm at the gym. My goal is to be there three, three, three times a week on the elliptical machine, the old man machine. That's what I call it. Brooke's there. Where's Brooke Croce? She's, is, she, is she in here? in the back there. She was running about 48 miles on the treadmill. A couple of rows in front of me. I'm plodding along on my treadmill. So earlier this week, that was today, earlier this week I'm there and I'm, I'm listening to a podcast or, or a, a teaching series. I like to I listen to some Anley Stanley. I've been listening to, you, I mentioned last week, the Life First series out of Willow Creek. And so I was listening to Anley Stanley. I listened to his leadership podcast some. And so I'm looking up at the monitors while, you know, I'm, I'm listening and uh, trying to keep my, uh, my uh, brain occupied off of my horrible fatigue and pain in this old man's body of mine. And I look over to the side and there's always, if I go in the afternoon, there's always this show on of, of live cameras in the ER. Anybody watched, ever seen that show? Yeah. All right. I, kid you, I kid you not. Here I am on the treadmill. I look up, and there is a man on a stretcher seated in an upright position. He has a pole. It's got to be this big around that's in his mouth and sticking out the back of his head. So I fainted and threw up right there in the gym. <laughs> Trainers came over with some smell and salt. I mean, literally, I got queasy. But you know what I kept doing for the next 45 minutes? I, I just I couldn't look away. A few weeks ago, I was talking to Nate, and I was saying, who watches Jerry Springer? Who watches that show? Who, don't raise your hand if you watch that show. And I'm working out, right? And I, I'm telling Nate what happened in the show over and over, and I keep stopping and saying, who watches that show? And at one point, he looked at me, and he says, clearly you do. I just couldn't look away. Right? And we can laugh at that, but that's, for many of you, that's your story. You just can't stop staring at the mistakes of your past. And that's exactly where the devil wants to trap you. Because if he can keep you focusing on those things that you just can't turn away from, then he will get you to a place where you begin to do things that you know are wrong because you feel so unworthy. You say, you know what, I've, I've just so messed up already. Why change? And he just wants to diminish your destiny. Romans 5, 8. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 2, 4. Another favorite verse at the City Life Church that it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. 
if Jesus is willing to die for you, even when there's no evidence of change yet in your life, if he's willing to believe in you in such a way, at some point, that's got to translate into your own heart where you begin to believe in yourself. It is a powerful thing when you love somebody that's unlovable because it's one of the first things that in, it gives them the hope to begin to love themselves. The people in your work that you don't like, the children in your neighborhood that aggravate you, come on, the family members, right? At, at family reunions, you know the list. People that are sitting in this room with you right now, come on, let's be honest with each other. You love people who might be a little bit unlovable because one of the reasons why they're unlovable is they don't know how to love themselves. And as you love them, come on, it sets them free. And it's the same way with you and I. If, you're, if you don't love yourself, Come on, we're praying that even tonight you're going to get a revelation of God's great love for you. That you're going to look into some things in your life that you used to do and say, I'm better than that. I'm not doing that anymore. Things that you've been afraid to. I'm not getting involved in in ministry, right? I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. I'm not worthy to, to be a part of that. Come on, that you're going to get past that. You're going to see that you have something to offer no matter who you are, no matter what story. No matter what story can be told about you. We're going to be a grace-seeking church where acceptance breaks the pattern of worthiness, disobedience in our lives. We are going to be a grace-seeking church where acceptance breaks the pattern of unworthiness, disobedience in our lives. I'm going to invite you to stand as we worship in the song together. And as we do, I want to read this verse to you. This is Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Listen to this. Jeremiah 3, 33, verse 3. It says, Call to me... And I will answer you, and I will tell you what? Great and wondrous things that you do not know. Great and wondrous things that you do not know, he says, if you'll call to me. And in Romans 4.21, it says, I am fully convinced that that which God has promised, he is able to fulfill. So, Father, as we sing this song together tonight, we say, let it be, O God, that we would believe that those words in Jeremiah, that they're for us that we're going to call out to you, even if we've been silent to you. Maybe there's people in this room that their prayer voice has just been silent for decades, that a cry is going to begin to well up inside of their heart and begin to say, God, I want to hear those great and wonderful things that you have in store for my life. A Psalm 124 existence. I want to live out on the wire. I want to dream a God-sized dream. I'm tired of a human result. I want a divine outcome. And you're going to be here tonight. And you're going to be willing to say, God, and I believe, I believe in spite of who I am, in spite of all that I've done and in spite of all that I haven't done and in spite of everything that other people have done to me, that it is a new day. I'm going to get unstuck. I'm going to get free. I'm going to let my heart run after you in ways it hasn't run before. I'm going to see relationships restored in my marriage and with my children and in my job and in my church. I'm going to, I'm going to get to throw my net. I'm going to throw my net wherever you tell me to throw it. Because I believe that you're a God, that when you make a promise, that you have the power to keep it. Let's worship together.